0: Today's episode of Idle Weekend is brought to you by BarkBox, a delivery service offering monthly deliveries of toys and treats for your dog. Go to getbarkbox.com weekend to sign up and get a free month of BarkBox. Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. This weekend, we're talking about a very, very favorite subject of mine, our favorite game world. So Rob, is there a place that you like to go back to? Is there, is there a virtual space that just feels really good to be in?
1: Uh, I mean, there's, there's absolute tons, right? Like, This is one of my favorite things about yeah. video games is that uh, I think particularly like growing up, uh, it was cool to sort of be able to like launch yourself into a completely different world and place and time, especially when you're young. Yes, and you're you go to these worlds where like you're an independent adult in these worlds. Like uh, that was actually really powerful uh, for me. Yeah. Like like Gabriel Knight sort of being alone on his own in Germany. Uh, and Gabriel Knight Two uh, was really. Uh, powerful for me because it was like oh so this is this is what's coming this is this is adulthood um (laughs) fortunately adulthood's actually been a lot better uh than a gabriel (laughs) Gabriel game uh, in a a lot of ways but no so i think this week um i've sort of been going for for a variety of reasons i'm still kind of limited in the kind of gaming i can do uh because i'm sort of uh without my my desktop pc so i've been sort of uh you know, trawling through what uh PlayStation Plus has has brought me over the recent months. Nice. And uh I sort of went back to Grim Fandango this week. Ah, very
2: good. And very
1: good. that yeah. is it's it's almost my cheers, uh basically. <laughs> like that, <laughs> nice. that game uh even in even in long spans of time when I couldn't play it, that game is still really vivid for me. And playing it this week uh, has just reminded me of just how exciting uh I find that world and it got me thinking about like well why right like there's like like why did why did grim fandango uh resonate so much with me why why did like the longest journey uh, re- resonate so much uh versus you know you know there's there's tons of fantastical game worlds out there uh games are sort of chock full of them so so why like why do some of them end up becoming, why do some of them end up becoming like second homes, right? <laughs> why are the, Why do they yeah. become places where your imagination always sort of returns?
0: God, that's such a really good question. And, you know, going off Grim Fandango, I was tweeting about this earlier, but for some reason I was just sort of thinking about my favorite games of all time, my GOATs, you know, <laughs> this week, and all of them are are partially and and sometimes in very, very large part because of their worlds because I constantly think about them. I have, you know, actual legitimate dreams in these worlds. You know, I I constantly, my brain just goes back to wanting to explore them. And going off of Grim Fandango, my favorite game of all time is Psychonauts. And that world is a place I'm always going to want to go back to. I'm always, always, always sort of thinking about Psychonauts. And you know, it's it's a game where you you go into other people's minds and and you know, it, it it has all this sort of fun pop psychology to it. Like, oh yes, this this weird little general whose mind is just a board game of risk. And you know, you're sort of solving little puzzles and platforming and doing all these fun things. For me with with Psychonauts, it's actually a kind of weirdly awesome and personal thing with my own brain. The weak that I played Psychonauts like every day. It was, it was summer of like, I think 2008 maybe. And it was actually the, the same week I had started taking, um, a, a medication for my anxiety and depression. And as I was playing this game and, and playing it for hours and hours, you know, sort of every day, um, I, I sort of had felt my brain, like, changing in some slight, subtle ways. My dreams became more vivid. My, you know, my, my ability to kind of disassociate from from emotional trauma was was getting stronger and stronger. And I was playing this incredible game about brains, and it was also a colorful and weird and wonderful kind of place for me to go while this change was happening. So it's like a weird thing that i actually literally started playing this game as i was you know kind of going through this change in my life and i you know i've gone back to the game and i've loved it and i've and it, you know it it's always going to resonate with me but like the fact that i played it at that time kind of made a huge impact on me
1: so so i think one reason that like these These Tim Schafer games end up sort of becoming favorite uh, vacation destinations (laughs) for my brain uh, is in part because um, you know it's I feel like I'm conflating two things when I say it's partly also the characters right but I think the interest the thing about these games is that they are the characters are part of the world and that they're worlds full of like uh, you know snappy dialogue and razor sharp like wit between characters uh or or just people like you know just hilarious non sequiturs and yeah. and, and things like that and i think that's one reason why they're so appealing is these are worlds where people always have the right thing to say ready at hand. It's like going into, uh, like in 1930s or 40s, like screwball comedy. Yeah. Right. Like reality was never like that. That like they, they're, they're fantasies of, of how people could interact. They are fantasies of who we could be if we were just a little more clever, a little more on the ball. And so you go into these worlds. Where everyone's like that, and for a while you feel like you're that you're that way too, uh, because you're getting all the jokes, right? You're you're sort of uh, you're listening to characters sort of exchange barbs. Like uh, one of my favorite things, like the thing that immediately made me feel at home uh, while I was playing Grim Fandango, is uh, Manny goes and shoots the shit with the secretary uh, at the travel agency, and they have this like this patter between them. Uh, where she's sort of heard all his shit before um, and he knows it and he's sort of just kind of needling her with his shtick Um, and it's it's just a blast sort of hanging out with those characters and it's the kind of interactions that like if i worked in like if i work in an office that's kind of what i wish the day-to-day was like right Um, and what an office it's this it's this amazing like art deco aztec uh palace these worlds are gorgeous and exciting and, and novel in ways that like reality never will be like you'll yeah. never go to a place that has a coherent motif like that it's never going to exist but here here is a place that combines all these influences in this in this really exciting way and it's sort it's 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 both familiar and yet utterly alien and it's an alien world you can easily imagine yourself living in and that's really exciting
0: Yeah, there's something really kind of special about that, about worlds that are just sort of like, man, I could just totally see this as me. Like, I can just see myself in this and completely, utterly say goodbye to crappy reality and just be there. Uh, That's that's why I play games, you know, like I I play for that escapism. I play for that feeling of being powerful and or interesting in (laughs) these beautiful or weird or interesting kinds of worlds. I, uh, I'm also really into, so, you know, Psychonauts being just my top game kind of ever, but I'm also really, really into a lot of other kinds of of game worlds. Like, of course, my my first baby Danielle's first sort of experience of this was, was, were the Donkey Kong Country games. I know, I, I have to mention them. Uh, it, and, and a lot of people give them a lot of shit. Uh, but it wasn't just sort of the graphics, it was the whole vibe of those worlds. It was kind of this, let's have an adventure in a beautiful place. And, and there was something coherent and very, very beautiful about that. And especially about finding secrets in those worlds. I actually recently read a piece about Donkey Kong Country 2 and how it's it's not built around sort of the idea of just the obstacle course. Like, the obstacle course is is there, that's the level. But there's also all these incredible secrets. And exploring for these secrets will always give you something cool. And there's something... There's something really brilliant about that, about, uh, you know, actually rewarding the player for not just exploring, but but going about, uh, you know, sort of traversing a level with an eye for adventure. And, and it kind of puts you in that mindset. And it's awesome and it's beautiful and it's great. There's another game named Anodyne, which I haven't talked about. Maybe enough on this podcast, but it's sort of a favorite game of mine, even though it's a, it was a tiny little game from uh, 2013 and it's basically a Zelda style game, but in this totally weird world, like a very um I, I don't even know know what to call its influences it, it just felt very weird and very personal and yeah there's there's plenty of sort of other video game references in it and it was actually made by two students they were I think they were just finishing college and they made this beautiful little gem of a game. Uh, that just felt like a 2D Zelda. And it's my favorite 2D Zelda. I, have, I say that completely honestly because it's personal and it's weird and it feels very genuine and from the heart. It doesn't feel like a product. It feels like something somebody made because they they loved it and they really, really wanted something you know special. And they wanted to make a world that said something. And that... I don't know. There's something that as well, the sort of idea of the creator and the author kind of like putting their stamp on this and creating a world to, to say something and not necessarily to say one thing, but to kind of envelop you in their ideas. And that's, man, that's just the power of game design to me, I think.
1: So I've, I've I've cited this book on, on other podcasts, I'm sure. But, um, one of my favorite books is the Napoleon of Notting Hill. Uh, by by G.K. Chesterton, and what I love about it is it's it's the study of the meaning of place. Hmm. Um, it's the study of the connections we forge with the places that raised us for good or for ill, um, and you know why it is that we're like you know there's some places there's some things that are utterly trivial, but like the thought of it being threatened is something that would like you know you would rouse you to its defense yeah uh and it's 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 a great book it's a hilarious but it's it's a hilarious book it's a it's a great work of uh satire and I, I highly recommend it um but there's this point where uh one of the main characters is sort of explaining that like what he's defending is the entire book is he's defending basically this this meaningless little street uh in notting hill <laughs> um and he actually ends up fighting an entire like civil war uh, to protect the street from like development. Uh, it's an early <laughs> anti-gentrification uh, work, I guess. Nice. <laughs> um, but he talks about like all these places that are commonplace and and sort of mundane and, and meaningless to other people. Those are the places where you know, as a young person, as a, as a child becoming uh, an adult. Uh, that character, you know, first became aware of the world, right? It's the first—it's t- the first place you felt an emotion that could be love, right? It was the first time that, uh, you know, you 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 were treated, you know, you realized that you weren't go- you weren't going to be a little kid forever. It's it's all these firsts, all these memories, all these things that sort of uh, sh- shape your your interaction with the world. And I think for me, a lot of my favorite game worlds are still kind of tied to things i encountered uh either when i was very young or things that i encountered uh at sort of you know fraught moments in my life but i sure, but i ended up having sure. that relationship with with some of these game worlds uh simply because because of the things that happened in these places even if they are imaginary places they still become really meaningful to me right yeah. like when i play the last express now it's not only one of my favorite games, but it's also one of the places that, like, I'm I'm sort of, like, walking around this, like, virtual Orient Express and sitting down at parts of these train cars, and I'm, like, remembering things that happened in this game that haven't happened yet in this playthrough, right? But, like, oh, yeah. uh, this is the place where uh, Tatiana and her anarchist boyfriend played their game of chess. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but then I also, like, I'm sort of projecting myself into these moments as well, where it's, like, yeah, I remember that I was I was standing like right here when I realized that not everything's going to have a happy ending because that was a, like that was actually one of the first works I had where I was like really invested in characters and everything and it doesn't have a happy ending. It has a has a somewhat tragic romantic ending and at, at the age I played that, that was like mind blowing. It was like, whoa. Yeah. So the good guys kind of won, but then the world went to hell anyway that's fucked up and that's, and <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I played this game and like I still have that feeling of like okay so this is, this is where I did some serious growing up uh, in my worldview and I was, I was standing right here in this, in this, in this part of the level uh, and that's where sort of the coin dropped uh, for me and that is another thing that I think has ended up sort of creating a connection with a lot of a lot of my favorite game worlds as well is just the things that happen there and the marks they left on me uh, end up making them important places in my life that is fun to revisit because it's a chance to sort of reacquaint yourself with that feeling of those first moments, right? The, the, yeah. the All the first that happened to us in our lives, uh, which is almost embarrassing to say, but not really. Because uh, yeah, like, no. on the one hand, like, like you know, the, I think the reason we're both here, the reason we both do this, is you know, at some point we sort of realized these games did have meaning to us yeah. uh, beyond diversion.
0: I don't think that's a bad thing at all. Like I, I think everybody kind of has, everybody is influenced by entertainment on some level, right? If it weren't games, maybe we'd both be so ridiculously giant fans of I don't know uh, a TV series or you know something in your life or or, or have these sort of Other places that are incredibly important to you. I think the human brain is a a incredibly, incredibly weird thing. And it makes these connections, especially when we're so young, uh, you know, whatever it is, it could be, you could be connected to, you know, a a specific toy or a a blanket or whatever it is. And and that's fine. and, And a totally good thing, I think. There's, there's kind of another side of this uh, whole thing about our favorite game worlds that I wanted to totally discuss a little bit. And that is when the game world itself is totally better than the game.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> like if you go okay. back to it. And I think I, I adore the original Bioshock. I I really do like that game. I, I think it is a good game that holds up. But it I do think it is also a case where the world itself is better and more interesting than, you know, sort of what you do when you play the game. <laughs> that that is I had dreams about Rapture for years. Literal dreams. Like, you know, all sorts of weird things would happen in these dreams and and I would I would always trace it back to being like, no, you know what? That was BioShock. That was totally a thing that happened to me in Rapture. You know, and and this game came out in 2007. I was an adult at that point. I was I don't know, 23, I think at that point. So, you know, <laughs> this is still happening to me. I don't know what that means. I have a like very malleable brain or what, but, um, yeah, I'm I'm trying to think of some other examples of like the world itself is, is, is more interesting than necessarily like the game around it.
1: But to the Bioshock uh, point, I'm I'm right there with you. Like to this day, I can't hear, um, like pop music and novelty songs from like the forties and early fifties. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to even necessarily be a song that was featured on that soundtrack, but just like that, that overall, like, uh, you know m- musical aesthetic yeah. um there's like an entire genre where the moment i hear it um i get a little keyed up yeah.
2: because
1: that was the interstitial loading music and when the music stopped you were in the shed, right yes. like it was Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it was like you know okay so we're like there's some, somebody's singing some uh you know some torch song and then the moment the loading screen vanishes, I'm probably going to have to club someone in the face until like, it <laughs> collapses and a pulpy mess. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the thing is, I think that's being a little unfair to you, Bioshock and Rapture. Just a little bit. The first Bioshock is not an amazing shooter. Uh, I will say that. And I also think it has some pretty serious third act problems. Uh yes. though I think those problems become really cr- critical actually much later in the game than than people often say. I think I think it's pretty good after uh would you kindly? Um oh, I, I agree. think it's just yeah. that last that escort mission and the boss battle yeah. is kind of a train wreck. Anyway, yes, the world is the best part of that game. But so much of the game is that world. Like all the stuff you're exploring little radio dramas you're, you're listening to the, 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 the patter of, of the old dialogue patterns, which by the way, uh, is something that, you know, again, it's, it's sort of, you're going to a world where people spoke differently and, and speak, uh, with a little more deliberation than, than maybe we do now. Um, something I really admire about that game is that it does capture, I think how people, uh, spoke back then. Have you ever, um, did you ever listen to the old Stud uh show that NPR ran, or do you ever read any of Stud's uh, books?
0: I did not. I, I'm sad to say.
1: So I only remember it because, like, I would be locked in my, <laughs> I'd be basically locked in my room to do homework, uh, <laughs> and of course, I like, of course, I didn't. <laughs> like, <everyone's laughs> were like go, go to your room and do homework. And I was like, mind <laughs> if I listen to NPR? And they're like, of course not, son. NPR is good for you. That's so just fine. Like, yeah. I shut the door, and uh, <laughs> so, so Stud Sturkel had this show uh where basically um he interviewed like people about their life experiences and uh you know you'd learn about like the life of ordinary people uh growing up in america in the depression in the 40s stuff like that and some of the stuff was really pretty harrowing sure. but yeah. i always sort of thought it was affect that like studs Durkle and a lot of his guests talked a little differently they talked like they talked like people in the movies did which was I, I was like okay that's weird and then i read his books um and the one i'd recommend probably is uh, the good war um okay. which is basically what world war z is just ripping off completely like it's like <laughs> sure. world war z is basically like oh man i really wish i could write the good war but it's already been written so i'm gonna have to invent a fake war that i can write about and view these <laughs> fake people anyway uh, but if you read the Good War, people express themselves differently uh and there's a different uh cadence to their speeches and and depressingly, I think people's vocabulary tended to be a little broader as well uh, sort of before the uh before mainstream culture sort of caused us all to converge on kind of a narrow form of expression. Uh, but anyways, like the thing about Bioshock is part of that world is all these things that, that are brought to life through uh, just the way people talk and the way you sort of hear them interacting and engaging with the world uh, over these audio logs. And so I, like, I feel like it's a little unfair to say like the world is better than the game. Mm. Uh, in Bioshock's case, because I think the world's better than the shooting, the world's better than the combat, the world's yeah. better than the yeah. lot of mechanics. But the game is that world uh, to a large extent uh, in, in Bioshock, and that's that's the defense I would that's the defense I would offer of that.
0: I think that's a very fair point, point. and I will also uh, give my little shout out that Bioshock Two is a, a better game. Oh than yeah, Bioshock One by no. far and away.
2: Bi- <laughs> but Bioshock uh, yeah. Two
1: is the thing that like ties it all together. Yeah, uh, where yeah. now the game and the world are kind of working in tandem. Exactly. Uh, and are shaping each other. Uh, yeah, no, I will, I will hands down uh, defend that. <laughs> I think Rapture is, uh, not Rapture, um, Columbia yeah. is actually a perfect example of the world being better than the game because there oh, yeah. I think the issue in yes. Bioshock Infinite is it never lets you explore that world. You can't engage with Columbia the way you engage with Rapture because the game is so on rails. Yeah. It is yeah. such a movie set. Uh, and that is what disappointed me so much about that game is that Rapture was full of quiet moments where you could just sort of browse somebody's library or uh, go through their house and, and learn about them. In Columbia, I never really felt like I had that option. And if I did, it was just a little room off the main alley, the, the main funnel.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, And I think that's kind of the issue is that Columbia promises this this entire world. Maybe it's a silly world. But I think one reason it's left silly is because you you can't explore it and it never fully becomes real.
0: Yeah. I agree. Damn right. I uh <laughs> I I want to put the Mass Effect series somewhere on this continuum Do it. as well. Do it. Um I I love the world of the Mass Effect series, and I I love the Mass Effect games. I um I don't know that they're necessarily better games or better worlds, uh, but I think as the games went on, the <laughs> the game, the sort of the mechanics became more interesting, but the world and the story kind of lagged behind a tiny mm-hmm. bit, but at the beginning, yeah. you know, the gameplay was a little more janky, but my God, the story. And then of course the sweet spot is everybody sort of, agrees I think was was Mass Effect 2 where you know it kind of had a really nice balance of those two elements but man dude I love the Mass Effect world it was just such a perfect you know Star Trek meets Battlestar Galactica kind of place and I really love both of those universes and did I ever love being the sort of like lesbian space captain who gets to get it on with hot alien ladies and also explore the universe and also be little miss, you know, hero Paragon who gets to save the day all the time. Like, it was... Playing Mass Effect 2 was, like, a revelation for me. I actually played 2 before the first one. I played 2, loved it, went back and played the first one so I could have my whole relationship with Liara, then yeah. played the second one again with the Shadow Broker DLC, which, you know, is a whole other I never played story. that. I really
1: wish I had. Because, oh, I like, I so hear good. there's so much interesting interesting stuff with Liara. Yeah. Um, and, like, if, like, the sort of... Um, Catching up of that relationship that you have to do uh, after that she's thought you've been dead for years.
0: Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, yeah,
1: really, yeah, I need to go back and uh pretty, do that. pretty
0: damn good. But
1: that was actually that was actually a game I was thinking of uh literally like last night.
2: Oh um,
1: nice yeah. because <laughs> um <laughs> Thoughts I have when I'm drunk. <laughs> thoughts I have when I'm drunk Mass Effect 1 is Bernie Mass Effect 2 is Hillary
0: oh my god
1: because Mass Effect 1 is trying to give you the thing yeah it's like there's an entire galaxy out there for you to explore have a Mako land on a world um, do all and this fall
0: over? Yeah, yeah.
1: Do all this stuff. Uh, it's an entire galaxy out there for you, and it may not work. It may not be easy. Uh, it may not be what was promised entirely, or at least it's not how you imagined. it. My God, we're at least going to try. You're going to get. You're going to get the galaxy. Here it is. Yeah. yeah. Here's your Mako. And Mass Effect Two is very much like this. Look, we need to calm down and think about what's feasible. And. <laughs> The Mako is not feasible, and if you can create, if you if you can create a, a popular like outcry for the Mako, we can discuss it again later. Right. But for now, we need to just focus on what is deliverable, what is practicable, and what will bring the most joy to the most people. And I'm sorry, Mako fans, but you're an insignificant voting block in the Mass Effect universe. <laughs>
0: my god that's perfect rob
1: it, no it really isn't it really isn't no that it's was just, really good <laughs> you, like it's terrifying how fast this handle of gin in my apartment is disappearing <laughs> no. uh it's like it turns out gin and tonics are a really good substitute for central air uh so oh, yeah we'll, <laughs> so, oh
0: yeah you don't even so care you having yeah.
1: weird thoughts like this but i did want to talk about this though like mass effect one uh is this like in addition to some of the really vivid settings like i think the um the entire ice planet uh, research oh, station. Oh,
2: so good! Yeah,
1: it's so cool. I love the way it's split in half. Where first you're in the regular part of the facility, and there's this like ice station zebra paranoia. Everyone's isolated. Nobody's like really being upfront or honest. And yeah. then you drive out to the to the lost research facility, um, and then it becomes a horror film. Yes. Um. But so there was all that, and then there was all right. Go run around these planets in this silly little car. Um, and go into the same four or five stock structures that we laid out <laughs> identically, uh, but have these like different adventures. And it's weird. I think Mass Effect 2 is a more even game. Like I don't think it has the down moments that Mass Effect One has a lot of, which is like these silly parts where you're driving around just these empty worlds uh trying to find basically a galactic airstream uh and and, and, and go like loot it um yep. but at the same time i also always felt like something had been lost a little bit that like yeah it didn't really work entirely well in mass effect one but the ambition was there yeah and mass effect 2 the world is more vivid. But and in some ways, it's actually fleshed out better, but it still ends up feeling a little bit smaller because your possibilities have been constrained. You you know that what you see is what you're going to get, um, and there's not going to be something over that horizon because the horizon doesn't exist.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely fair. And then when you kind of think about Mass Effect 3, which is kind of a disappointment in a lot of ways, but, you know, also... Mass Effect 3, I think, is a perfect game that delivers on all the bullet points, but kind of loses some of the soul of the previous games. And it's and it's such a weird and funny through line, you know, kind of coming from 1 and 2, where, like, 1 is, like, all soul, not necessarily all the execution. 2 is kind of half and half, and then 3 is, like, all execution, no soul. And, God, that's such a weird thing, you know? It's kind of a, a weird thing about, like, hey, the combat is so much better in this game. This is actually fun combat, but... Don't care that much about what i'm doing yeah mass whereas effect 3, yeah i
1: couldn't even i i, I still haven't finished it because i just kind of zoned out i was like yep still pushing that war score meter um i yeah. guess we'll do the, the other problem is this it's the um mass effect one and two particularly two are like star trek series like the tv shows yeah, yeah and mass totally. effect 3 is a star trek movie and yes. That's the problem, is that Mass Effect 2 is full of all these great, like, this is the Captain Kirk stuff, right? Like, what is, like, here's, okay, the genophage sounds terrible, right? Except here's the thing. The Krogans breed out of control. They're incredibly warlike. Uh, and it took basically, like, the entire galaxy to shut them down last time. So what, what were our options? We could exterminate them, or we could give them the appearance of sterility. But they're not. They're, they're not going to die out. They will always feel like they're dying out. Uh, and that's a really interesting like that's a cool dilemma and you, yeah. you talk to like Morton Solis and like he's sort of proud of the work he did on it but at the same time like now he's friends with Krogans and yeah. it's, it's like maybe we got the entire thing wrong maybe our premise was just fundamentally flawed that's great stuff and that has nothing to do with like the, the threat to the galaxy it's this it's this high stakes morality play that yeah. also works on this personal level for the characters you're around Um and yeah, and then Mass Effect 3 is like, all right, so we gotta shoot these, we gotta shoot these Reapers, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Let's tie up all those loose ends. Hey, you you know, it, it feels like the end of a police academy like credits kind of thing. Like, <laughs> hey, remember Jacob? This is what happened to Jacob. Hey Morden, hey, that's what happened to him. Hey, you know this guy, what happened to him? Like it's it's completely like, it's totally like the end oh my of God. Animal
1: House. Yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> they just needed to get it all in, and I don't I don't fault them for their approach. Like I don't, I don't think it's like a crappy game the way some people kind of think it's like a piece of shit. But you know, it, it lost so much in in that sort of translation, I guess, or or, or sort of that uh, that that feeling that oh, well, we raised the stakes so high, so a lot of the other things that you consider smaller things, which are really what the Mass Effect fans love, at least. This Mass Effect fan sitting here, what I loved, you know, the characters in those little moments, and of course those, like you're saying, like the high stakes morality plays, so much more interesting than necessarily like the Reapers are coming across, you know, the galaxy. I don't know. It's 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 a weird conundrum, and it's it's something that I'm sure designers kind of bang their heads up against all the time, especially in like a big series like Mass Effect.
1: So before we uh, before we leave this, any other any other favorite worlds, things that like. You know, a place you will always go happily uh, to to go spend time.
0: Yes. Um, Majora's Mask is absolutely a place I will always want to go. I think it's the best 3D Zelda game. That and Wind Waker. I kind of have my cake and eat it too on those two. Because one is sort of the happiest 3D Zelda game and and beautiful and cheery and, and gorgeous. And the other is sort of the weirdest 3D Zelda game and has like, you know, genuinely bizarre structural things in it. Um, So Majora's Mask, for its weirdness and its colorfulness, and its just sort of inversion of the whole Zelda formula, I think it's, God, it's so beautiful um, in that way. And uh, you might find this weird, but I truly love the world of the Crazy Taxi games. Okay. Those were among the first games that I kind of, so I think Crazy Taxi and its formula uh, and to some degree, the, the second one as well, um, just are are like the most perfect personification or gamification, whatever, of like the risk reward mechanic. Like you can go for the easy job that's not going to pay a ton, or you can go for the hard job that might end your game, and that is the whole game. That is just completely the whole game, and they take place in these sort of bizarre but but fun and goofy sort of. Um, uh, cities like these big cities and you know in 2000 2001 when i was playing these on my dreamcast i was kind of like wow this is like a city and i'm in it and there were there were a couple of dreamcast games like that that i feel that way about the world jet grind radio is another where i just always 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 would be down to be in that world and you know spraying graffiti and playing on my rollerblades shenmue is another that was kind of the first like you know, it felt like a, a real world to me. It was it was '80s small town Japan, but it felt like being in a place, and that was really special and awesome. And uh, gonna have to give a shout out as well to uh, Banjo Kazooie. I love that game, and I love the worlds of that game. I played it again last year when it came out on the Rare Replay sort of compilation, and it holds up so beautifully. Oh, just such a goofy, colorful, beautiful place that had so many little secrets and so many little nooks and crannies that I always loved exploring it. Yeah, God. I. Uh, <laughs> my last thing that I'll say for now, because I, I don't want to go on all day, but I could go on all day because this is why I play video games yeah, and why I love video games. But uh, the worlds of kitty horror show games um, are just fascinating, bizarre, architectural creations that I... I will never get tired of exploring those worlds. They are weird and wonderful and creepy and just so much damn fun to run around in. How about you? Any, any other special mentions?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, like, yeah, I could, I could go on uh, all day <laughs> as well. I, I think, uh, like, I love Prince of Persia Hands of Time, uh, oh, just yeah. as uh, interesting. And that's another uh, Jordan Mechner game. Yeah, uh, uh, on my on my list of favorite worlds. Very different from The Last ex- Express, of course, but like I just love like, um, it's sort of like fairy tale fairy tale Arabian Nights apocalypse uh, yeah. theme. Like all the times that like you climb these towers and you see this endless like enchanted dust storm, uh, spreading out sort of below the below the palace and across the city uh i just i just think that stuff is that that stuff is just fantastic yeah. um it is an amazing looking game um and you've got again like great characters at the heart of it who have this like fun uh enjoyable uh you know by play between them uh yeah so that's 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 another one uh that, that i've always really enjoyed a place i'm always happy to go back to uh two games that i sort of like for similar reasons uh the original Deus Ex and ah, yes. uh, the original The Darkness.
2: Oh, yes. And both yes, of those, Darkness. Yeah.
1: both of those end up sort of, <laughs> in terms of the way they, they structure their world, uh, are almost identical. Um, they follow a very, uh, the levels are not very big, and they follow a very simple, like, sort of uh, hub and spoke uh, pattern right. where, like, you go, you hop in a subway and you go to a different part of the city and, and all that. And then you're, you're in another, like, tiny little neighborhood. But I think the thing I really loved about those games
2: is that um, both of
1: those games sort of exist in this. This is weird. Both of those games are weirdly conscious of the homeless and the downtrodden.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, in a way that a lot of other games are not, in a way that a lot of other media is not. And, like, for instance, in. Your typical like rock star game, for instance, like people living on the streets still like exist in those worlds, but a lot of times it's almost like for a joke right oh, like totally. look at these yeah. look at this crazy drunk, look at this hobo <laughs> isn't that funny yeah. and it's one of the reasons I find like the satire so utterly hollow in those games is that ultimately like um they're they're fundamentally fine uh, with the status quo you know they're, yeah. they're not actually they're not actually like uh, countercultural in, the, in, in any meaningful sense.
0: Yeah, the South um, Park joke kind of thing.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and in a lot of cases, in many cases, like actually meaner uh, than that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just like, like actively finding mirth in, you know, like in people's misfortune. Um, in Deus Ex and the Darkness, what's interesting is your character ends up sort of <laughs> becoming this like liminal figure. Uh, where both games you're sort of part of an organization that gives you like prestige and power uh, and and some measure of authority, and then really quickly, you kind of fall out of that and you're still connected to that other world, but you're also kind of an outcast, and you end up the games sort of open up and you end up in these um spaces where suddenly like you're The the people who maybe make the most sense to you, or or the people who are maybe the most open to you and like the least hostile, are going to be those people like you know living in the subway station, the people who are living under the highway overpass. I've always found that interesting about those games. But the other thing that the the reason these end up sort of making them my, my favorite game worlds is that they are this fantasy that you can step out of. Uh, step out of your day to day reality, and just like go to that you can see how the other half lives and yeah. actually engage with them in a way that's not condescending.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: Um, and I and I like that. I like that that exists in in these games, right? That a lot of them are sympathetic characters. Uh, and sometimes not. Sometimes sometimes people are just, you know, assholes and it doesn't matter sure. if they're, uh, you know, if they're, if, they're, if they're homeless or street, cl- street thugs. Uh, but both these games have this air of the world you thought you lived in uh, has sort of turned against you and you're not really welcome there anymore. Well, maybe now you understand these other people that exist in this world a little better. Right, maybe now you understand that, like the person, like who you think is just making crazy, like who's just rambling insanely, uh, at the start of the game, suddenly you realize that maybe they've had some of the same experiences you've had, uh, and that they're processing them in a different way. But they're not—they're not just nuts. They're not just deranged. Yeah. yeah. It's just they see the same world that you have but most other people can't. Um, and I find that a really powerful fictional device, but also kind of a beautiful bit of world building yeah. uh, that sort of exists in both those games.
0: Yeah, there's sort of a kind of beautiful, like, making a connection that doesn't yeah. always seem possible in the quote unquote real world, you know? Yeah. Man, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> I think that's probably a really good, uh, a good place to take a moment, have a word from our sponsor, and move into our mailbag. Rob. So, uh, I want to talk to you about something. Between accidents and maulings and general puppiness, my dog has destroyed, seriously, no joke, like four of his toys this week.
1: That pretty much sounds like a puppy.
0: And he is, and I love him despite it. Uh, but luckily, there's this service called Barkbox, which sends out monthly shipments of toys and healthy treats all arranged around a cute theme.
1: You know, that sounds pretty good and perfect for a puppy's toy destruction schedule.
0: And if you sign up at getbarkbox.com slash weekend, you can get a month of BarkBox for free. And a portion of the proceeds goes to adoption charities.
1: That's getbarkbox.com weekend for a free month of BarkBox when you sign up for a plan.
0: Drake, puppy, what do you think? Okay, he barked in agreement, so I'm, I'm totally down for this. All right, and now it's time to reach into our beautiful mailbag. Our very first letter comes from Joe from New York. Joe writes, So obviously, localization is more than just translating text from one language to another. It also involves making sure that things make sense to the audience. Many cultural references and jokes that only work in the original language have to be changed, and to the detriment of some, elements of the original game may undergo some... ...censoring. Recently, Tokyo Mirage Sessions came out, and they seem to have rewritten parts of an entire chapter to remove all references of gravure modeling. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but I'll say gravure modeling. No. Basically, swimsuit modeling. They redid all the dungeon backgrounds for that chapter, renamed the magazine in question, removed all of the swimsuits from the game, and replaced them with some much more modest-looking street clothes. Now, I don't mind the changes when it makes sense, but they basically went four kids on this game naturally this upset a lot of people I'm not going to say that uh, the angry people are right to be angry, but I will say that Atlas and Nintendo were wrong on this one
1: just, just I... to interject there, he, he includes a footnote, 4Kids uh, Entertainment was a company uh, that was notorious for changing elements of some anime in order to make them more kid friendly <laughs> uh, rice balls are now donuts, sometimes they're sandwiches uh, yes. uh, that's not a cigarette, it's a lollipop, this sounds amazing, <laughs> like when they just like, start drawing new stuff, that's, a, that's great
0: yeah, that's kind uh, of amazing. <laughs> yeah,
1: I didn't know this company existed. That's, that's hilarious. Right, uh, back to the yeah.
0: letter. Uh, pretty, pretty good stuff. Yeah, so back to the letter. Uh, I feel like the target audience for this were people who were already willing to play a game that was steeped in Japanese idol culture and fine with Japanese-only voices, which they also re-recorded for some of the changes. So I think they probably would have been okay with a few girls in bikinis. So I'm curious, now that I've talked your ears off, at what point is localization changing too much of the original? In the case of Tokyo Mirage Sessions, there's a clear case where more people bought it because they could patch it back to normal. Does that number outweigh the number of people who would not have bought it if it was released officially the way it was in Japan? There's no way of knowing, but I think it brings up a good point. Does Nintendo really know what the target audience is for some of these games? Thanks for reading. Joe from New York. So, one quick thing. Censoring (laughs) in this context does not mean, uh, well, okay. They made some changes, right? Censoring would be literally like blocking out, it; would be like having black bars across the the bikinis, I yeah, think, and also as opposed to. it would be to- like
1: done for like like legally required,
0: right? Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. No, I'm all for keeping the definition of censorship to actually mean censorship and not yeah. like removal of things that, for business reasons, that people may find offensive or just more of a headache than they're worth. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. That's now now whether or not that is being. Too gun shy, not not stepping like you know what I mean. Like yeah, like yeah. like it, it crosses the line of not actually um, of 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 being too ready, too ready to compromise the integrity of a work. uh That's that's still an interesting question. Um, yeah. There's a lot of th- cases where things aren't necessarily censorship, but there's this weird tap dance around. Uh, Some types of content and not others. Most notably like around the PG-13 rating, uh, for instance. Uh, And the things that then we are sort of, for business reasons, defining as acceptable. And then the things that we are continuing to somehow make illicit or or invisible uh, in the name of just not dealing with the hassle of putting out content that some might find objectionable.
0: Yeah. I I think Joe has a strong point here when he talks about... The target audience for this as well you know this is not like for all intents and purposes a super mainstream game this was not going to be you know your average you know person who has their nintendo system and plays mario games was probably not even aware of tokyo mirage sessions this is kind of a game that is like do you really like you know, Japanese culture and RPGs. Do you really like idol culture? Then this is for you, my friend. You know, it's it It feels like this was kind of a niche product in in general. And I think there's a point to be made there for, like, yeah, I, people wanted this game for that idol culture experience, you know, and, and that probably also means bikinis. I'm not super into Japanese idol culture, so I'm not entirely sure if that necessarily means bikinis, so you know, don't, you know, don't get me wrong. <laughs> like, I'm not saying like, oh, it should definitely have bikinis. Uh, it's just, okay. There, there's a difference for me. And this is just me personally between bikinis and like something super gross, like underage, like dating underage girls or kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like there there is a difference for me. Um, so I don't know. Uh, but I do think there's a point to be made there about like knowing your audience and knowing what your audience wants. And if the thing that your audience wants is fairly innocuous, I yeah. I wouldn't personally have a problem with that. You but
1: the fact, but see, I, I I think what you just said there is the reason Nintendo makes these changes. Yeah. You don't actually know like what the content of of this game is, and someone. But the issue for, for Nintendo is that. Someone like you or like me, who's not really familiar with what this game is actually doing, could like come across some images or clips from this game and be like, what the hell is this? What
0: are these like, bikinis? Is, like, yeah. Well,
1: not only like that, <laughs> but like what like what are these like really young looking girls uh, uh, in yes. like hypersexualized like bikinis and stuff? Like this is like this is creepy. This this yeah. is this is this is this is weird. And it might, actually, might not actually be that way at all, right? Like, yeah. within the fiction of that game, uh, that that might not be what's what, what's going down in, in the slightest. But the problem is, like, people are going to see these images, they won't know the context, but they will have certain ideas of some of the weird... Uh, the weird stuff that exists at the margins of uh, <laughs> of Japanese sure, culture
2: sure uh, and yeah.
1: will immediately jump to these really dark uh, conclusions and that 's the thing like Nintendo maybe doesn 't know what the target audience is for some of these games, but I think really the issue is, issue is nintendo doesn 't care. Uh, nintendo <laughs> sure. cares about the image that is projected about Nintendo games every time something goes out uh, like made available for one of their systems, yeah, and so I, I think that is a case of N- yeah, and Nintendo are within their rights, I guess, to to take this approach, which is like, look, it's just not it's it's not the image we want. Um it's more headache than it's worth. This will anger the target audience, but you know, th-
0: they'll buy it anyway kind of thing Yeah. yeah
1: and also they're just not worth it uh to us because the the thing we want to avoid is editorials and scandalized parents and anything that sort of jeopardizes this image that like nintendo is a safe system for literally the whole family yeah um so yeah i mean i i think in general in in general my attitude is like I always want that stuff in the game, like even the even the weird stuff. Like, just let, like give me the option on the menu to be like, "All right, safety's off. Let's see what the <laughs> actual work is."
2: Sure, sure.
1: Um, but the problem is localization does sort of take that decision away from the audience, right? It's it's sort of the company saying, like, "Look, we know best," and even if we don't, we just don't care that much. Uh, right. We just want anything remotely controversial to just disappear from this. Uh, so here have your you know have your bunch of kids in normal street clothes and <laughs> uh, you know it, it doesn't look it doesn't look weird it doesn't look questionable and uh, who cares if that's not really what the, the it, who cares if that's now running contrary to what the game was trying to evoke
2: yeah
1: um, so I, like I definitely like I want that stuff in the game uh, and if I don't, I won't play the game the weird thing about this is like now it's it's the man. Uh, coming in and being like I know better uh, and really I know what's best for me and I'm not really interested in what's best for the audience for this game or the game (laughs) itself
0: yeah yeah that's a very difficult uh, tightrope to walk and Nintendo is is known for being potentially the most you know authoritarian about its its brand, you know, more so than than even the other sort of giant corporate <laughs> entities. Uh, you know, they're they are incredibly strict about, you know, even things like, you know, we've talked about this in sort of the Let's Play episode, but you know, about anything that could look bad for Nintendo is a real problem. So it's interesting that these that this particular game was on a Nintendo system. I don't know, it, it's it is an interesting thing for sure.
1: Our next letter comes from Nora aka Rincewitch in the Thumbs forums, and she writes, The letter in your early Accessification episode about women in strategy gaming communities really struck a chord with me and inspired me to write in with some of my personal experiences of, well, being a woman in strategy gaming communities, mostly Paradox Games, which I do screenshot Let's Plays of. I can write about being a woman in strategy gaming communities, but I can't really write about joining them. Uh, I'm transgender, so I kind of feel like I just sort of snuck in before I realized that, and then was just too stubborn to leave. Uh, Sometimes I wonder if I should have left anyway, if I'm somehow compromising myself by staying, which is kind of an ugly thought, uh, a thought born of internalized transphobia, but it's still something I think about sometimes. I wouldn't say that a lack of people visibly chasing off women in a given community is the same as an absence of active hostility towards women. Uh, when I first scoped out the community of some game I'm thinking when I first scope out the community of some game I'm thinking of trying out, I always try to see if there are any other women and how they've been treated. Uh, if there aren't any at all, I often just assume they've already been driven away long ago and keep my distance. Huh. Finally, uh, regarding history, the fact that roughly half of everyone who lived in history was a woman notwithstanding, the history that has come down to us has been disproportionately written by and about men. <laughs> most historical strategy games take this to the extreme and just omit women entirely take world war ii for instance women played so many fascinating important roles in the war partisans snipers pilots resistance fighters air wardens spies uh, women decrypted german signals at bletchley park served in the home guard manned anti-aircraft guns flew with the night witches uh, but i can't think of any games that seem particularly interested in telling those stories i guess the soviets in hearts of iron four can get female aviators uh, but World War II strategy games tend to be populated by an exclusively male set of characters. Your national leaders, your famous generals and admirals, your generic regular infantrymen shuffling around the map. Which, well, is accurate, I guess, since obviously most of those guys were men. Uh, but I still, some- it sometimes still makes me feel uh, that not only is strategy gaming is not for us, but the history isn't either. It almost makes me appreciate the aggressively ahistorical approach something like Ace Patrol took. I kind of like Crusader Kings 2 a lot in that respect. Uh, when I Let's Played it, I used one of those gender equality mods uh, to really center women in the narrative I was telling. But even in the base game, women can rule kingdoms, assassinate people, serve as counselors of state, pursue agendas, exercise agency. I can't think of many other uh, historical games where that's the case, aside from the odd queen or two. Yeah, there's the point. There's, there's a lot here. Um, that is... That's a, that's a very good point first about the lack of visible hostility because yeah, it's very easy to look like a things tend to be very quiet when there is no perceived threat to the homogeneity of a community. Um, and again, certainly like my experiences on a wargaming forum, it didn't seem that sexist until someone showed up who didn't fit the model. And then it was like, Oh, Oh, this place is insanely sexist. Um, so, yeah, I, I completely get that. And I, I don't think, I think the Paradox community, like, I think it's caught Paradox by surprise at times as well, right? Like, remember when they did, um, what was it, like, in honor of, like, it, is there a Women's History Month? Women's there History is. Day? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when they did some DLC updates for their games around Women's History Month, and their community just, like, started to lose its shit, because yeah. it was like, you're... This is this is bogus. Like, what what are you doing? And Paradox's reaction was was kind of uh, you know classically Paradox, which is like, what are you on about, you idiots? Um,
2: and, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, please stop being so visibly sexist while playing our games. Yeah. Uh, but um, it was it, but it was kind of an interesting moment, right? Because like Paradox Games, especially Crusader Kings two, like have had female characters, and they've sort of touched on. Uh, you know the the various not only important women in history but also uh difficulties that important women in history have had because of of their gender um, and I thought it was kind of funny that that audience still when paradox tried to take that step to sort of center women a little more in the narrative or like. Uh, tell a little bit more of it, tell a little more of the history of like women in these periods that even this like community of history nerds, uh, kind of, like some segments of it kind of lost their, lost their minds over it. Yeah. Uh, which was depressing, but again, kind of telling, right? Cause yeah. everything looks cool until someone says, well, what if, what if maybe we talk about women a little more and then suddenly things are not cool?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, that's super disappointing and, and very illustrative. I, I do love Nora's point, though, about the cool and amazing things that women really did do in World War II and that they were real stories. And that that does go back to our point when we talked uh, last week about sort of historical accuracy and the fact that sometimes historically accurate things will be met with, that's not how it was. And, like, you know, even more of, of kind of that attitude. Um, but. That just makes me think even more that we need, you know, need as if, you know, I'm I'm dictating that some designer needs to make this, but I think there is a need, you know, on some level for, hey, a cool, historically accurate thing about women who did do badass, awesome things in World War II. You know, that would be cool. I would love to play that. I would love to read about it. I would love to you know, experience that. And maybe if we had a few more of those things that would shift the opinion of world war two was only about the men in the trenches kind of thing. You know, that would be, that would be cool. I think that would be very cool personally.
1: Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this a little bit since we, since we talked about it. Um, I think one problem is that a lot of these stories are exceptional. Sure. And, a lot of times what people are trying to do with strategy games uh, is tell uh, the broad story. Uh, the non-exceptions. That, right. And so it's this weird thing where, so take, like, take, a, take, take a game, like take a shooter, a military shooter or something like that, in World War II, and okay, you're going to tell uh, like, the story of women serving in combat on the Eastern Front. At that point, that's what that story is about. You know what I mean? It's not about the Eastern Front. It's about women on the Eastern Front. Right. And I think that spooks people. I don't think it should. Like right. I, think that, I think that's absolutely fine. That's an ex- that sounds exciting to me. Uh, but the thing is, I, I think there's this, it's, it's this sort of ugly, it's, it's a vicious circle. It's self-reinforcing, yeah. uh, which is that you want to evoke the history that people are very familiar with. Uh, sort of the the generic General experience of like combat In a given theater uh, And so you're not going to talk about those exceptional things Because well that's that just seems too out there um, and, and, that's the, and that goes way beyond gender Like for instance um, When you picture like British troops Fighting the Germans in World War II You tend to picture like you know guys from newcastle and Edinburgh right and, white, and white
0: dudes yeah. yeah yeah
1: and i mean the the problem is like in the sort of the telling of how britain uh stood alone against germany the entire commonwealth gets forgotten right you know right. but like uh you know both both france and and britain like had colonial troops um you know indian indian troops uh, moroccans uh african africans yeah. Yeah. Uh, all sort of engage heavily engaged in these in these combat zones and and sometimes at great risk themselves right because like because of racial attitudes uh, like soldiers like that were more at risk of of having war crimes committed against them yeah. uh, and such but games don't really acknowledge that because it'll look weird right like it, and it's it's like so like if if you were to I don't know if Company of Heroes ever did anything like this but they introduced the British faction and it was all like. Uh, Aussies and Canadians and (laughs) Scotsmen and (laughs) uh, Northern Irish and like posh Brits and stuff like that it was all like the white parts of the Commonwealth right? (laughs) Um, which by the way just had some great voice work Uh, and I, I don't necessarily like have a huge problem with that but at the same time I think it's kind of telling that like I suspect that if you'd had like a Kenyan rifleman or something like that or, uh, you know, South or or South African uh, light infantry Mm -hmm. uh, unit show up in that show up in that game or, or, uh, you know, Indian troops, there would have had like, you'd almost have to stop and explain like, okay, so these were also British troops (laughs) in this war. And you might be surprised at how some of these troops look, but let me tell you about the legacy of colonialism and who actually did a lot of the fighting uh, on the periphery of World War II. So, yeah, I I just, I I think it's not really, I think the, the point I'm making here is that we're trying to get to a point where We can acknowledge these parts of history without uh, necessarily, without it being so freaking novel, right? Without it being such a a mind-blowing concept that like, what? Women did something in World War II? (laughs) Uh, But I think to get there, we have to just sort of start acknowledging that like there were these cases that don't fit our popular conception of what that war looked like, that there were these exceptional cases uh, and they're interesting and they're worth talking about uh, and should maybe call into question both our assumptions about history, uh, but also uh, our assumptions about like the role of, of genders.
2: Yeah, Um, I,
0: I completely agree. And I, and I would say I have, I have some hope. I I think we've seen a lot more in, and this is just even in the sort of fantasy realm, but we've seen a tremendous amount more, Women protagonists in games in the last two years, say so. I I think it's possible. Uh, it just it just needs to be one of those sort of cultural shifts where more developers are willing to kind of kind of do that work, you know, kind of do that footwork and kind of put some of those uh, some of those scenarios forward. I think. Okay, our next email comes from Emil from Sweden. Emil writes, "Hello, Rob and Danielle." I've been working as a game designer at a smaller studio for a couple of years now on uh, projects of varied size. Something I've been thinking about that's affected me both in my personal life playing video games and my professional life as a designer is the question of how we use the word addictive in video games. I myself have often struggled with having control over how much I play games, often ending up playing sessions way longer than I wanted to, and ended up resenting them as being manipulative, most recently getting to the next level in Overwatch for an additional loot box, a system I wish I could opt out of altogether. As a designer, I noticed that when working with customers, they often give you feedback that they want something to be more fun. After inquiring further, you usually find that this means adding more rewards and goals to strive towards, rather than working on the mechanics themselves. This leads you to becoming quite proficient in making addictive systems. I often worry that we conflate fun with addictive. Some game concepts seem inherently addictive to many types of people, civilization for example. Do you think that game designers have a responsibility towards players regarding what way their games might be addictive and at what level? Do you think journalists have a responsibility towards players about how they talk about addictive qualities in games? Or is this simply up to the players themselves since most hobbies can be addictive if you're in the right headspace? There are certainly games I've worked on and played where I could see changes being made to make it more or less addictive. As a player, I often find myself wishing for the latter, while the industry as a whole rewards me for making the former. Wow. Uh, Lots of stuff here uh, from Emile. I remember sort of years ago when uh, sort of talking about a game being addictive was like the greatest compliment you could give a game. I remember some review of something, maybe it was Devil Dice on the sort of original PlayStation where uh, somebody in Electronic Gaming Monthly said it was as addictive as chocolate chip crack. And I will never forget that phrase. And thinking like, oh, this was such a great compliment in 1998 or whatever. And now I'm thinking about that and I was like, yeah, that's evoking some gnarly shit It's a little gross it's pretty bad (laughs) you know like that's fucked up um yeah i i'm wary of some of this stuff myself and uh maybe that's maybe that's part of why i gravitate so hard toward games that are about sort of being in a world and and the sort of floaty ethereal uh (laughs) kinds of things that i i really enjoy you know with that said i'm also like a can never stop playing drop seven. So what does that, yeah. What does that say? I'm a total hypocrite. Um, I, I, I do think there's, there's something to be worried about. There, there are some worrisome qualities about, Oh, let's just make it more addictive as opposed to being more rewarding inherently. Uh, or, or let's make something more goal oriented and reward oriented than being a fun thing to do itself. um, you know, there's plenty of psychological studies that say things are actually less fun and less uh, rewarding the more you're sort of uh, extrinsically rewarded for doing it, as opposed to just enjoying it yourself, just enjoying playing the game. Um, and I think we all kind of have those feelings about, oh, you gamified something. Gross. You know, I, I feel like we have uh, at least a lot of folks who who have been doing this for a while. They're kind of like, ew, that's yucky. Like, <laughs> I don't like these mobile game addictive qualities in my in my game. That's yucky. Uh, but we're all still human and i think we all still kind of fall prey to a lot of these things at the same time
1: so the thing i take comfort in is that i think it's a moving target uh i think audiences become more savvy over time yeah uh and sort of the crude methods uh like i hope sort of eventually stop working i'm not sure they stop working in mobile uh, as as much (laughs) because i think that audience tends to be a little naive uh but also what i think a lot of mobile audiences are looking for are time wasters of things that just erase the down moments in your commute and such um, yeah, and yeah. so by all means make it sticky make it addictive um <laughs> but i think a lot of this stuff uh i think people sort of get hip to it and it starts to lose some of its power like i like although i say that and then ubisoft games keep selling better and better Yeah. So maybe I'm (laughs) completely wrong, but let's pretend I'm right for a second. Uh, I think a lot of us now are a lot more aware of the various hooks that games are trying to use to sort of bait us along and to stay invested. Uh, And once you're aware of it, then you can make a choice whether or not you actually want to engage with that system uh, and, and sort of like play that game. Uh, or if you just want to continue focusing on the, the parts of the game that you genuinely enjoy uh, and that you might be finished with first.
0: Yeah, I, I worry that some of this is like advertising, right? Like we all, not we all, but a lot of us kind of think we're immune to it because it's like, oh, I know what you're trying to sell me. Ha <laughs> ha. But yet we still might be slightly more likely to buy that product over something else. Like it, Like it is kind of working on some part of our lizard brains. So... I don't know. I I struggle with it a little bit myself, as as someone who is probably pretty susceptible to a lot of these things for sure.
1: Oh yeah, no. I mean, there's, I mean, there's definitely types of advertising that just like connect with you and yeah. sort of even if you're aware of you, you're being manipulated, like yeah. you're like, I want that life. Yeah. I think I'm that kind of person. Um,
0: like I look at a cool like this. I I will admit firsthand. Like, I think a lot of, like, martial arts clothing looks like cheesy shit. You know, talk about mobile games. It looks like it was designed by, like, a failed mobile game producer who wanted to make, like, a heavy metal addictive whatever the fuck. But I I still totally want the, like, ridiculous rash guard that has, like, a snake on it. Like, I still will totally buy that stupid bullshit, even though I know it's stupid bullshit. <laughs> so, yeah. Ugh. Uh
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Yeah, maybe a lot of us are more susceptible, but I also think just as you're bombarded with the same stuff again and again, it, it slowly loses its power. But I do think, like, there are certain things that I've noticed, like, game developers now say, like, they say sticky and not addictive.
2: Right? Yeah, that's it's, true. It's
1: kind of the same thing. It's just maybe a nicer word. Make, it, make uh, a stick. <laughs> but I think we talked about this either on this show or Three Rooms Ahead or something, but I remember. Before Civilization Five came out, the entire marketing press around that was built around just one more turn. And um, yeah. it was sort of like now they just fully embraced, like, haha, civilization is coming back, it's gonna ruin your life, your marriage. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah. And God. I remember uh. the thing that i and I think I may have written this down somewhere, uh, in in a piece, but I felt like around that time. It sort of heralded a problem that was starting to crop up with the Civ series as a whole, which is that addictive, like add- addictiveness for addic- addictiveness' sake, had suddenly become a design end to itself. Yeah. Uh, that because you could keep people like you know keep asses in seats and <laughs> keep you know play- pressing one more turn, that somehow you'd succeeded at making a good game because like hey look at this time played. Um, and I felt like with, at times with civilization five and, and certainly with, uh, with beyond earth, that was no longer the case. You know what I mean? You could, yeah, you could absolutely, you'd engineered a game that was hard to put down. Uh, but at the same time, when you did put it down, you'd sort of say like, did I actually enjoy that day? Did like, was that, was that an effective use of my time? And the answer started to be no more and more uh, for yeah. me. And I started to get away with, get away from it. And so that is something I tend to, um, I, I do worry about a little bit because I, I think sometimes developers use time played as a measure of success. Like how often have you heard people sort of dismiss people who complain about a game and they've got like a thousand word, hours logged <laughs> into it or something? Yeah. Haha, <laughs> look at this. Look at this loser. Uh, clearly he got his money's worth. Uh, he's You know, he's a hypocrite for complaining. But I've totally been that person. Like I, like I totally, like I played a ton of uh, the original Empire Total War, and then once I sort of like stopped being so immersed and swept up in it, I was like, I don't think I enjoyed most of that. Like, like most of that just didn't work for me. But I couldn't. But it was hard to break away because the, the hooks were so effectively baited that you kept thinking. That Okay, so you weren't having a ton of fun right now, but in just a little bit, you'd find something that was fun and awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I, I do worry a little bit about that. I worry about sort of the, um, the questionable incentives that now exist around a lot of game design. Uh, but I'm also immune to a lot of it. Like, man, I, I hear people talking about like, the loot boxes in, in Overwatch, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, I don't get it. Yeah, like I don't I do like none of that stuff interests me in the slightest Uh, cosmetics like all that stuff just I don't get it like that's not that's not that's not what I want.
0: Yeah. I think that's fair. Maybe maybe once you put your thousand hours into something you uh, you start to become (laughs) completely immune to to its charms and its wiles. You know what's really going on. You know what you're getting out of this at this point. (laughs)
1: All right, just a last note from uh, Andreas from Sweden. Uh, Continuing on Rob's favorite topic, I thought I would chime in with another treat. Uh, It's called Free! And stars really slim and handsome teenage boys who swim in the school's swimming team. Oh, my. It continues the, to me, curious anime trend of are they really good friends or are they lovers? Oh yeah. Where the main protagonist and the main antagonist shares that special passion of rivalry that only true athletes do. Or lovers. <laughs> the anime pushes it to the limit. Just watch the, the first ending and you'll be free! <laughs> uh, and then he included uh, a very weird uh, clip of the ending of I guess the first series or, or something like that. Which is just classic like anime entitled bullshit where it's like
2: <laughs> cryptic
1: imagery that has nothing to do with the rest of the series and then teenage boys dancing in nightclub uh to catchy j-pop uh yeah and, wow like I, I can hear the like danielle's like yes give 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 it
0: please do i i just love how many you know handles on the idle thumbs forums that uh, amanda cosmos has clearly made
1: yeah uh (laughs) yeah so so for those like listening like it's we we have a mutual friend who um like i thought the idea of like the gay recruiter was a pernicious myth of like 90s (laughs) paranoia uh, but I'm not entirely sure that like Amanda isn't isn't one uh, using <laughs> using uh, boy love anime and manga to like seduce people uh, into into that side of uh, of, of fiction. Uh, That's but, beautiful. Like every time I open my timeline, uh, if uh, if if this friend of ours is is awake and posting, uh, chances are it's going to be weird, uncomfortable, sexually charged imagery of. <laughs> of uh young men um very pretty young men uh gazing gazing longingly uh into each other's eyes
0: now not for nothing but this instinct was alive and well in the uh midwestern housewives that have been writing slash fiction about kirk and spock for for years and years so there's something there's something Uh, to this
1: yeah there's Hmm. something
0: there's something there there's there's That's really... interesting, so i I not really yeah. put those
1: two things together. I thought it was a weird like anime nerd subculture thing, but I guess no, you're right. Like
0: I feel like women and and certainly gay men as well, but but I feel like you know, heterosexual women from all all across the world have been super into this idea for a while now, and just, you know, we're only just now in the internet age. Just coming what to if the, the point two handsome
1: boys kissed?:
0: Exactly. Okay. What if they they love each other so? They clearly love each other on some level, even if it's a very heterosexual level on the on the you know sort of the main text of the show yeah. or whatever it is. But what if they were more than just friends? What about that idea? There's there's something that I think that I think we people need to explore.
1: Why does that like why that idea has so much power for yeah. like like heterosexual for people women, who like right? men? Like, yeah, yeah, like for exactly. people who like
0: men, yeah. Yeah, there's something there. But maybe that's a topic for, for another day. Possibly
1: another show. Uh, <laughs> Probably uh, an like...
0: entire show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, on that beautiful note, Rob, I think it's time for us to talk about our weekend projects. And is there, <laughs> whether or not it's about uh, hot men kissing, is there is there something that you are, are super into these days, watching, reading, listening to?
1: Uh, so I'm having the laziest week like uh, (laughs) I'm having another trash can of Claire uh, type of week (laughs)
2: yes (laughs) Uh,
1: so this week because I've like when I'm home now I'm doing a lot of work around the house and uh, just some just some like you know crossing some stuff off my to-do list that I just need something that is like completely entertaining and diversionary and not remotely serious Um, I've exhausted the good parts of Entourage as we discussed last week (laughs) Um, yes so I've gone back, and now I'm watching uh, Arrow again. Oh,
0: nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
1: Which I really like that show. Like, I've watched it all before. This is my second time around. And I think what I'm enjoying about it this time is that when I watched it the first time, I didn't know where it was going, and I thought the opening of the series was probably way more uneven. Um, and and it, certainly the show was was rougher in its early days than, than it became by like its second season. But... Uh, Watching it now, like knowing what's going to happen with a lot of these characters, I'm amazed how much actually does uh, hang together. And how interesting some of those early episodes become, knowing what you know what's going to befall some of these characters, some of the lies that are being told uh, that will blow up like landmines uh, under these characters later in the series. But the other thing that I'm really just enjoying right now uh, is that uh the the lead Stephen Amell uh playing uh, Oliver Queen um he's got all these cute male friends I'm just wondering if they're gonna kiss uh no yeah. no uh, <laughs> <laughs> no no I mean like the, the joke on the show is like uh, like Arrow is a show that like is co-starring uh Oliver Queen's Salmon Ladder uh that <laughs> <laughs> he climbs like two times an episode uh just it's
2: it's
1: it's like pure ab ripper workout nice um but the other thing I really enjoy about this show is I, I think the two main themes of, of the show, and I think it's what frustrates people actually. People sort of joke it's it's too emo, it's too soap opera y. <laughs> uh, but the two major themes of the show are uh, loneliness um, on the part of the main character. Like that's ultimately his, his real dilemma is that he comes back from sort of being alone on this island for five years and he's, you know, suddenly decided to become this mass vigilante. And so he's sort of reconnecting with all his family and friends but at the same time he can't connect with them on a genuine level anymore he has too many secrets um his he's too he's too apart from them uh or at least he feels that way and so part of the show is just this this sort of look at the way lying becomes like a way of life for this character and the way he keeps sort of driving away the people around him which it makes him a little bit unsympathetic at times but at the same time like you know as someone who does like has been like very introverted at times and like very lonely at times like man lying is a really good way to guard your privacy and i actually <laughs> sure. like i like watching it this time around i really have enjoyed like sort of understanding on that level that like this is a character that to some extent is just like congenitally lying because it's easier than addressing the truth and it makes people go away, uh, when you really don't want them to press you on something. Yeah. So I like that. The other, the other theme of the show, of course, is, uh, how friendship breaks those barriers down. And what's like really great in the early part of the series is, uh, he meets, uh, his, his partner in, in crime fighting, uh, his bodyguard, John, John Diggle. Mm-hmm. And, Uh, from the first their relationship has this really interesting tension because they sort of both recognize each other as um, you know Diggles this character that's come back from Afghanistan uh, his brother was killed uh, is you know is basically someone else dealing with the fallout of traumatic experiences Uh, and from the first they kind of recognize that um, they're both kind of bullshitting each other and it's kind of beautiful as the series progresses like the way they slowly start breaking each other down and forcing each other to like evolve and grow. And it becomes this really like uh, enjoyable uh, portrait of, of growing friendships. And the really interesting thing, little side note is that, um, so the the main, the the woman who became the main female lead, uh, in the series basically started the series out as the nerdy sidekick.
0: Oh, nice. Um,
1: and, like just it's a it was a kind of a minor part and i'm not sure when it was ever planned to grow too much beyond she was going to be the tech girl who did the you know the the tv hacking and <laughs> <laughs> became basically the the deus ex machina uh of the series but the hilarious thing is like right from the first um it, it kind of like, it ends up kind of sabotaging the overall arc of the series uh, because she ends up playing like this larger and larger role because her character actually ends up becoming like super friends first and foremost uh, with, with, with Diggle and, and, and Arrow. Nice. Uh, and so it's this interesting example of like, okay, so they wanted to have this like, will they, won't they really tense relationship between the ostensible female lead and, uh, and, and Arrow. But unfortunately, it turns out, like, audiences and maybe even the actors in their performances just enjoyed this more healthy, like, friendship, like, comradely relationship. Yeah. Uh, And in the end, like, Arrow turns into basically a team of super friends, uh, which I completely adore. Uh, But it's interesting to see that start to take shape in those early episodes where the series is trying to be like, look at this serious, like... Like this the this serious um sort of doomed romance between Arrow and uh his his old flame. But then the the subtext like that's the that's the text of the series, and then the subtext is like man the like these two really get along. Like look yeah. at this group of friends. Isn't this awesome? Like look how happy they all make each other. Wouldn't that be cool <laughs> if it was just about them?
0: Oh, it sounds like good daredevil almost like
1: uh that's very much what arrow is uh, <laughs> like i'm gonna be like straight up uh arrow i would take arrow over daredevil like any day of the yeah. week yeah. uh now if you if you liked daredevil you should you should give arrow a shot uh because it's it doesn't have the grimdark maturity that <laughs> daredevil rocks at times uh, but yep. actually <laughs> i think it is secretly a much smarter and more mature show. Yeah. Uh, so highly recommended. Um, great study both of like a sympathetic portrait of like uh like loneliness and the and the way it can kind of make you a shitty person. Uh, <laughs> but then also just the amazing healing powers of friendship.
0: Okay, I need to watch this. Anytime the nerdy girl sidekick gets like elevated a little bit, I I'm so down. Also <laughs> like i will watch anything action oriented even if it's terrible so like i'm already i'm already in that's it's on the list you should watch it just
1: watch how just watch how quickly like the nerdy girl sidekick starts hijacking the show it's like it's like she swings from the rigging onto the ship of the show (laughs) and like steals it it's it's really it's hilarious to watch the only like the only comparison i can make is like um Walton Goggins in Justified, where he played Boyd Crowder, and he was supposed to die in the first episode. But audiences were so like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And what an amazing character and relationship he has with the main character. Uh, and he ends up becoming the co-star of the entire show. And they had to, like, they had to sort of create this other, uh, basically, in the in the pilot episode, you can see him get shot basically through the heart by the main oh character. Oh, uh, And then I think they had to, like, add an insert shot showing that somehow, like, is he being wheeled in the ambulance? Like, nope, he was just shot in the upper chest area. He's fine. He
0: missed the heart. Oh, yeah. That's perfect. Yeah. I love that shit so much. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Um, I am reading another sci-fi novel right now. It is called 2312. It's by Kim Stanley Robinson. And I'm having a lot of fun with this one. And I actually like it for a really selfish reason in that it gave me an idea to make another little game project that I'm like totally wrapped into and starting to write and getting really excited about and started playing with all these tools that are, uh, that are sort of like, Twine integration into Unity—all sorts of fun stuff has opened up for me in my life because I started reading this book. So, the book itself is is pretty rad. It's uh, it's sort of, it's really just kind of a a plot made to, to investigate all kinds of like cool futuristic technology and cool things that could be in our world in a couple of hundred years. Uh, it sort of stars this woman who is 135 years old, which is only middle aged. Uh, In this world, and she's had all these cool augmentations, she's had like, bits of bird DNA put in her brain, and she has sort of explored gender and has like, uh, basically modified herself so that she can have uh, different kinds of sexual organs, so she can have all sorts of different kinds of experiences. And she lives on Mercury- and the way you can live on Mercury is there's a giant city on rails that sort of expands in the, in the cold so that the city is always in the sort of dark side of Mercury. It's, it's just basically a playground of all these cool technologies and cool things and cool transhumanism. Um, you know, there is a plot. There is stuff going on. There was an attack. And we need to get to the bottom of this and all this other shit. But I honestly don't even care that much about the plot it's almost it's almost like the dis- discussion we had earlier about the world the world is so cool to me yeah that's what it sounds I'm, like yeah that i'm almost you know I'm, I'm interested in the plot i'm interested in the gameplay you know kind of thing I'm, I'm i'm going along with it but it's more that this world is just so damn cool and there's so many cool little surprises and things that are going on and you know there's an aspect of it where terraforming uh people made asteroids into Uh, biomes and they started sort of creating new biomes they were like what if you put like a you know uh, a rainforest next to a desert what would happen then and you know sort of create they they add all the animals in and all the plants in and then they put a town in the middle and they sort of see what happens it's just this really fun little playground of cool technologies and cool futurism that I'm I'm really enjoying just sort of again wading through this world and, and sort of hanging out in it and being in it and uh Yeah, selfishly, not self, I guess it's not selfish, but it really did give me a fun little idea for a game project. So whenever something actually inspires me with an idea that I can make into a little creative thing, I I automatically like it, even if it's a piece of crap. And it's not a piece of crap, so it's even better. (laughs) So sweet, awesome. I think with that beautiful note, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you're enjoying the show and you have a moment, please go ahead and give us a rating on iTunes and go ahead and tell your friends, family, whomever you think might enjoy the show. It's a small gesture, but it means so, so much to us because that's kind of the only way we can get out into some new earlobes. Earlobes, eardrums,
1: whatever. Earlobes, you don't hear with your earlobed in, yeah.
0: Yeah, you really don't. Uh... Into your tympanic membranes. Nice. There we go. There, wow. you, there it is. Like that anatomy right there. Uh, you can learn more about the show at IdleWeekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at IdleWeekend.net. To keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at IdleWeekend. For Rob zachney this is Danielle Riendo. Wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends.
1: Uh, that was a fun episode.
0: Yeah, it was good. A very
1: long episode.
0: I know we got we carried away. Little, we got we went a little far.
1: Yeah, but it was fun. It was-